Well, hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. My name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to episode number 13 of the series titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. The topic in this episode is that of what was going on in the spirit realm during Jesus' first coming to this earth. Jesus accomplished all sorts of things when he was on the earth the first time. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 14 of his gospel that one of the reasons Jesus came was to show us in the physical realm who God the Father is, who makes himself known in the spiritual realm all the time. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature represented in human form. Many point to Jesus' teaching on what a life that's pleasing to God looks like, and Jesus certainly demonstrated that. Some say that the miracles Jesus did, like healing people, demonstrated what Jesus wants for us all. He wants us to be healthy and happy and wants the best for us. And they say that he wants us to live with the kind of optimistic faith that will move mountains. Well, most will agree that the main thing Jesus accomplished was to provide a way to gain eternal life. Uh, No argument for me. That that by leading a sin-free life, then being sacrificed in our place for our sins, He made it possible for our spirits to live forever, if we believe in Him and what He did. Those are all great things, some more debatable than others, but for all these things that typically come to mind when we think about what Jesus accomplished when He came to earth for the first time, There were many, many more things that he accomplished in the spirit realm. Very significant things that will have huge ramifications in the future. The dark spiritual forces did not see what Jesus accomplished coming, or they never would have had Jesus put to death. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9 states this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Although it's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. The Apostle Paul here was not talking solely about humans when he referred to the rulers of this age. The term, this age, represents a period of time that began long before Caesar and extends still into our future. Paul was speaking about the rulers in heavenly places who have been here and will be here for the entire age, but are doomed to pass away. He's speaking about Satan and the regional princes who are in authority. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, It might be a good idea to go back and listen to the last several podcast episodes. Anyway, it was through Jesus' death and resurrection that God executed steps in his plan to re-inherit the Gentile nations and restore the earth as his own kingdom. Whereas now we know that Satan is called the God or the ruler of this world in several passages in the New Testament, Psalms 82 says, Arise, O God, judge the earth. For thou shalt inherit all nations. God wouldn't need to inherit all the nations if they currently were his. And we see in the book of Revelation the day in the future when this re-inheriting of the nations occurs. We read there in chapter 11 that when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, it's announced that, quote, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, his Christ, unquote. Well, This restoration of the earth to Yahweh was made possible through what Jesus accomplished during his first coming and what he yet will do when he returns and puts all his enemies under his feet. There's far more to the story of Jesus' first coming to this earth than meets the natural eye. His coming was part of a great cosmic drama playing out for far more than an earthly audience. In the unseen realm, what Paul called the authorities in heavenly places, were not only looking on with great interest, they were also actively participating in the story. Many were aggressively attempting to stop what ultimately occurred anyway, 
despite their efforts. Everything I have previously discussed in this podcast series on the biblical worldview of the spirit realm has all been background information for what occurred in the unseen realm when Jesus showed up in the role as Yahweh's champion. The Gospels are saturated with supernatural activity. Most of the time when we look at the scripture, our focus is narrow. It's a tired cliche, but we're looking at an individual tree and we miss the forest. Especially when the forest, or in symbolic terms, the storyline, is not the main storyline we've been trained to see. We see stories of Jesus' individual miracles, and we read of what he had to say about living a life pleasing to God. We study how it is that he came to be our Savior. But until we back away and focus on another storyline that's playing out and connect all the dots, we just may miss it. Without all the information covered so far in this series, one might miss the significance of much of what occurred as documented in the four gospel accounts. Essentially, it's been the foundation of what took place in the spirit realm according to the Old Testament. It was Jesus' coming which turned the tide in Yahweh's epic story which spans two realms of creation. His son and champion did not show up the first time to defeat earthly physical forces and established his kingdom on this earth. After all, human rulers captured and killed his body. Jesus came the first time to earn his spiritual credentials. He showed up to dominate the forces of evil, make them subject to himself, show them who would be king of this world, and make possible the mystery which Paul spoke of. That Yahweh would re-inherit or take back the nations, and that, along with Israel, the Gentiles would also be a part of the Most High God's eternal people. One by one, Jesus sets individual captives free from their bondage to this world, and it's God, Satan. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, tells us this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, these rulers and authorities Paul's talking about are not mere mortals. When Jesus was here, he put the rulers and authorities in the spirit realm to open shame. Some think Satan is not a factor, and we only have ourselves to blame for the state of the world and the evil taking place in it. The Apostle John disagrees. John sums up the need for Jesus to appear the first time. It was because of the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus had to come to reverse the effects that this created spiritual being we call Satan is responsible for. But don't miss what the rest of the New Testament tells us, that Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion. He still attacks, distracts, and tempts those who Jesus has set free. And he still rules over all who are not the elect of God that have not gained eternal life. Jesus still has work to do when he returns the second time. Reading the Gospels again in the context of what's taken place in the spiritual realm in the Old Testament can be explosively illuminating. Yes, what I've been talking about in this series is controversial, and it is a big idea. But it's not my idea, and it's not a new idea. It's an idea as old as Scripture. There's far more that could be included in what follows regarding the first coming of Jesus and how it affected the supernatural realm, but it will serve as a summary of some of the more spiritually significant elements of the divine drama that played out during the first time that Jesus walked this earth. Well, first, let's talk about this epic, unholy plan to kill Jesus. Most 
who've been around Christianity for any length of time have heard how, when Satan fell, that a third of the angels followed him to this earth. Hopefully, you've come to understand now that when Satan acted out against God in the Garden of Eden, that he acted alone. It wasn't until later that a third of the angels decided to join him in the rebellion against the Most High God. It was sometime prior to Jesus' birth that Satan came to earth along with a third of the stars of heaven, stars being the old ancient world terminology for angels. They came specifically to kill Jesus when he was born. All of this is based on what we find in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. It tells us this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood for the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. In this passage, we read of a woman who we can identify as the nation of Israel vicariously giving birth through Mary, the mother of Jesus, to a male child, Jesus, the one who would rule with an iron scepter. The dragon, as defined up ahead a few verses in Revelation 12, 9, is Satan. The stars, as we also read later in chapter 12, are angels who are loyal to Satan. The number of Satan's angelic followers was vast, probably numbering in the tens of millions. His purpose for rallying them, as the scripture states, was to devour Jesus. Much of what occurs in the book of Revelation is sequential, but there are also uh, sections that are parenthetical that go back and explain things a little bit more. And there's also sections like this in chapter 12 that are kind of like panoramas of history, significant spiritual events in history. And that's what we have here. This is not talking about John's future. This is talking about a significant event in history, the coming of the Messiah the first time around. So what we see here is that when Satan figures out that Yahweh's plan involves an earthly Messiah, that Satan rallies his troops He gathers a third of the angels of heaven, convinces them somehow to follow him. Well, how did Satan know when to do this? There's many possibilities. He may have read the book of Daniel, where the prophecy concerning the timing of the coming of the Messiah was given. He might have been listening when the angel conveyed the information to Daniel. His minions may have overheard Gabriel informing Mary of the upcoming blessed event of Jesus' birth. All we know is that Satan, along with perhaps tens of millions of his angels who decided to put all their eggs in Satan's basket, showed up in force. Jesus was and is the unique, supernaturally conceived human. Unlike any other human, Jesus was supernaturally conceived through the union of Mary and the Holy Spirit of Yahweh. This act likely did not go without notice in the supernatural realm. The countless demons who were lying in wait for Jesus at his birth, who were dispatched by Satan to Bethlehem, were met with a multitude of the heavenly hosts loyal to Yahweh. There may have been no more of a significant earthly event since creation when the morning stars or angels all sang joyfully. But this heavenly host didn't merely show up to let the shepherds know that Jesus had been born and sing a few Christmas carols. They were on scene providing a major show of force. No one would interfere with the child of Yahweh, his heir and human champion, who was born the monogenes, the unique son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. This was a 
big deal in the spiritual realm. But once Jesus was born, Satan, working through one of the humans belonging to him, King Herod, sought to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Well, his plan failed. Jesus' father was warned, supernaturally, by an angel in a dream, to leave Bethlehem and flee to Egypt. Jesus is called the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Jesus is not only the second Adam, but he's also the second Israel. Adam rebelled against God, sinned, died, and stayed dead. Some argue Adam, if left to himself, may have rebelled without any encouragement, but the fact is, Satan played a part in Adam rebelling. From Satan's perspective, his efforts to thwart the plans of Yahweh were successful. Conversely, unlike Adam, Jesus did not rebel, despite Satan's great and direct efforts. He did not sin, and even though in the end Satan's efforts to kill him were successful, Jesus overcame the death that he didn't deserve. Like Adam, the descendants of Jacob or Israel were set apart for Yahweh. Yahweh even referred to Israel as his own, quote, firstborn son, unquote. In Exodus 4:22, we read of God telling Moses to inform Pharaoh, quote, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me, unquote. God proved himself to his people, Israel, on many occasions. Yet, Israel rebelled against God many times. They were unfaithful as they were successfully seduced by other gods from other nations. Nations controlled by the angelic sons of God who were in rebellion against Yahweh. From his own perspective, Satan, as in the case with Adam also, was successful at causing the one nation Yahweh set aside for himself to turn away from him in favor of gods who were loyal to Satan. Then there is Jesus, unlike Israel, the firstborn son. Jesus, the firstborn son, overcame every temptation and remained faithful to Yahweh alone. Prior to Jesus' coming, as far as Satan was concerned, both Adam and Israel had fallen. In his mind, Satan's mind, the score was Satan 2, Yahweh 0. As the second Israel, the life of Jesus paralleled the history of Israel in many ways. One of the earliest ways was that of being called to Egypt by God. Matthew ties Jesus to Israel when he wrote in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, this, And he, Joseph, rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew was quoting the prophet Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew was quoting this verse. It had to do with Israel, who was also God's firstborn son. So it was tying Jesus to Israel, and that they both came out of Egypt. Well, of course, what Hosea wrote sounds like he is referring to just Israel, the son of Isaac. And he probably was, but as many prophetic scriptures, maybe even unknowingly to Hosea, he was also writing about Jesus. After spending time in Egypt, Jesus was indeed the child that God called out of Egypt to return to Israel. When Israel left Egypt, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. The next thing we read of happening to Jesus and Matthew is his passing through the waters of baptism. As Jesus came up from the water, he saw heaven open, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended and came to rest on him. A voice from heaven for all, in both the physical and spiritual realms to hear, declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What happened with this heavenly pronouncement that followed the baptism of Jesus is like Israel being affirmed as God's own people at Sinai and entering into a covenant with him after they passed through the Red Sea. But it was even more than that. It was a proclamation 
by Yahweh that Jesus was his son. The significance of this goes well beyond only stating the relationship. Yahweh had declared Jesus to be his heir. In the culture of his day, that statement came with all the rights and privileges associated with the one granting the heirship. Since all in the unseen realm remained subject to Yahweh, this had huge spiritual ramifications. This meant that at least all in the unseen realm who were in earshot of his, uh, this statement in Judea knew that they were now subject to Jesus. It's only after this that we start to see Jesus performing miracles. So it also meant that Jesus was no longer subject to the laws of nature as other humans were. He had just been declared an heir of the God who created both realms. Like the descendants of Israel, after they passed through the waters, then spending 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days after passing through the waters of baptism. While there, a highly motivated Satan tempted Jesus to rebel against Yahweh. Satan had convinced many others in the spiritual realm to do so. But Jesus, like the faithful Israelites who daily trusted God for their survival, also relied only on God. However, afterwards, unlike Israel, Jesus lived the rest of his life in obedience to Yahweh and not in rebellion. He never turned away from Yahweh in favor of other gods. Jesus was not only the successful Adam, he was the successful Israel. He demonstrated this not only to the physical world, but the residents of the spiritual realm, those who had witnessed both Yahweh's first Adam and Israel failed to maintain their faithfulness to him. Jesus didn't listen to Satan's advice or accept his offers. He did not bow down to Satan or any other god. We have heard many times that Jesus defeated Satan when he was here for the first time. Overcoming Satan's temptations is the beginning of how that unfolded. Well, it's after Jesus exited the wilderness that he started his ministry. The people of God the Father, Yahweh, consisted of the twelve tribes of Israel. Instead of the twelve tribes of Israel, Jesus gathered twelve disciples around himself as he went about his father's business. On the surface, it appears that very few, only a couple servants, his mother, and a couple other disciples were aware of his first miracle of turning water into wine. However, those beings of the unseen realm who were present for the creation of the cosmos were also looking on at that first miracle. Remember, the heavens and its occupants were created prior to the six days of the creation of the physical universe. You read that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Well, with that in mind, the angelic beings who had witnessed Yahweh speak into existence, an earth that appeared to already be aged and matured, these same angels watched as Yahweh's Son created what appeared to be an aged and mature wine. <laughs> like, like father, like son, right? Well, many have wondered why Jesus performed various miracles and did not find it necessary to call any attention to them. The truth is that the messages being sent by Jesus when he performed various miracles were being received by more than physical onlookers. They were being witnessed by beings of the spirit realm and the messages being received were loud and clear. Often it was the onlookers in the spirit realm who were the original intended audience. Of course, we benefit by somebody writing it all down so we could later read of it. The invisible watchers from the unseen realm would have also noticed how Jesus miraculously fed over 5,000 people on two different occasions. Actually, I think one time it was 4,000. That was like they had seen Jesus' father provide for the people of Israel as they lived in the desert for 40 years. And instead of eradicating the descendants of the Nephilim as the Israelites had done at God's command, Jesus demonstrated to the fallen sons of God that they and their kind were not welcome to inhabit where they did not belong. He did this by using his authority as the Son of God to cast demons out of people. He did that several times. 
The significance of this in Jesus' day was even bigger than how we might think of it now. In the first century, because of intertestamental period writings like the book of Enoch, many Hebrews believed that demons were the spirits of the Nephilim who had been killed and who longed to live as humans again. Yahweh had no tolerance for the Nephilim, whether using Israel or Jesus to drive them out. Very significant and purposeful was Jesus casting out demons in the region of the Gerasenes. The stories of his doing so are contained in Matthew 8:32 and Luke 8:26-39. It was an area inhabited by Gentiles, which presumably was an area under the geographic spiritual authority of a fallen principality. After all, they were raising pigs there, and swine, being an unclean animal according to Jewish law, well, the raising of pigs was left to Gentiles. This area, the ancient area of Bashan, was where false gods were regularly worshipped by Gentiles. Jesus going there and accomplishing what he did was like poking a spiritual bee's nest. (laughs) But it was more than that. It was like the D-Day Allied assault on the beaches of Normandy, except Jesus was an invading army of one. This region, east of the Galilee, was the same area hundreds of years earlier that the Israelites marched through, killing the Rephaim, or Nephilim, the descendants of the sons of God, who, according to Jude, left their proper dwellings in the heavens. Understanding the Old Testament history of this region and connections with the fallen angelic sons of God that this place had, we probably should not be surprised that when Jesus showed up on its shores, that he was greeted by a number of demons. The demons who were in possession of the naked man, or men, depending on which account you read, who lived in the tombs may have even witnessed and been affected by the extermination of the Rephaim at the hands of the Israelites. And they probably had even recently heard about the announcement that Yahweh had recognized Jesus as his son. Well, now, here he was, and they knew that they needed to obey him. They begged Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. But Jesus knew exactly what the abyss was that the demons were referring to. It was the same place of gloomy darkness that Peter and Jude referred to in their letters. The abyss was where, after they were bound, the sons of God who had laid with the daughters of men had previously been sent and imprisoned by Yahweh. It was in this same region Jesus was in that all of this traditionally took place in. Well, instead of being sent to the place of gloomy darkness, the abyss, the demons asked to be sent into a nearby herd of swine. Jesus, thinking their suggestion of being cast into a herd of unclean beasts was appropriate, obliged them. He sent the demons into the herd of swine. The herd quickly ran down into the lake and drowned. It seems they ended up in the abyss anyway. Unclean spirits in an evil region cast into unclean animals. This was a predestined, confrontational, in-your-face action against the Gentile regional forces of darkness. Not only did Jesus want to free those who were possessed by demons out of his compassion for them, and not only was he credentialing himself as the Messiah and Son of God for the sake of the physical being's knowledge living on earth like you and me, but he was also, perhaps mostly, making a statement to the dark forces of the unseen realm that there's a new sheriff in town. He was establishing his clear authority among them. Satan's only remaining hope, in his mind, to maintain control of his kingdom was to somehow destroy Jesus. To prepare the way ahead of him, Jesus sent out 70 disciples to the towns and villages he would soon be visiting. 70 does not appear to be a coincidental number. It's the number which matches the number of Gentile nations in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. Because of this, it's the number that possibly represents how many regional spiritual or angelic authorities were put in charge in the heavenlies of the main nations, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32. It was also the number of elders God instructed Moses to elect and bring with him to be in the presence of God. 
And it was the number in religious or spiritual authority over Israel in the form of the Sanhedrin during Jesus' day. Jesus, electing 70 to go out on his behalf, does not appear to be a random decision. It appears to be another statement that, like Yahweh, Jesus had the authority to appoint his own 70 to act on his behalf and according to his will. We can read in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, that when the 70 returned to Jesus, they joyfully reported that, quote, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, unquote. Jesus responded in a way that reaffirmed to the disciples that he had indeed been given dominion over Satan and his angels. Like his father, Yahweh, he not only had that authority, but he also had the authority to grant it to others. Noteworthy, and cool, (laughs) is that hearing these results from the 70, it made Jesus happy. (laughs) Jesus appears to be stoked (laughs) about the developments in the unseen realm. Luke chapter 10, 21 to 24 says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The report from the disciples regarding their success was like a message coming back to the king after an epic battle had just been fought and the enemy had been routed. What is it that the eyes of his disciples were seeing that the prophets and kings longed to see? Jesus knew the turning of the tide in the physical realm had to start with the turning of the tide in the spirit realm. He knew he needed to show that he could bind the strong man, Satan, before he could take over his house or his kingdom. The Messiah was in their presence, and although he would not be taking control of the physical nation of Israel at this time, he was doing very Messiah-like stuff in the spiritual realm. He was manhandling the enemy. Great victories were being won and changes were being made apparent in the heavenlies. And Jesus was very aware of it. That made him joyful. I I love thinking of joyful Jesus. Please don't miss what Jesus was at the very least in part joyful over. Spiritual victory. Domination of the dark forces in the spirit realm. The people of Israel had been looking for a Messiah that would come and put things right. An anointed one who would dominate the enemies of Israel. I'm arguing that in the spirit realm, during Jesus' first coming, this is exactly what their Messiah was like. Jesus' followers, you know, us today, may mainly know him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But the spiritual beings who are on the wrong side of things ran for cover when they saw this Jesus coming. Well, Jesus and his closest 12 disciples traveled northeast of the Jewish villages of the Galilee, about 25 miles as the crow flies, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was clearly Gentile country, a center of paganism. Before it was known as Caesarea Philippi, the city was called Panias, a Greek city founded in honor of the Greek god Pan. It was considered a temple of the Greeks' most high god, Zeus. Well, there's a cave that sits just north of the ancient city at the base of Mount Hermon, which is still there today. It's where the pagans of Jesus' day believed that the fertility gods spent their winters. It was considered by the pagans to be the gate to the underworld, or hell, Hades. Every year, to entice Pan to come out of the cave, the people would engage in prostitution and they'd have sex with goats. Caesarea Philippi later became known as Caesarea Panaeus. That name mutated in Arabic to Banaeus, 
which is still what it's known as today. Located just to the north of the Gadarenes, where Jesus had earlier visited and cast out the demons into a herd of swine, Caesarea Philippi is also in the region known in the ancient world as Bashan, also known as the Place of the Serpent. Well, the serpent had come to be known as the Lord of the Dead. This had been the kingdom of the giant Rephaim, King Og of the Old Testament. The pagan city of the infamous god Ashereth was also found in Bashan. Caesarea Philippi sat on the southern base of Mount Hermon. Well, as I've said before, according to Jewish literature, including but not limited to the Book of Enoch, Mount Hermon is the traditional place that the sons of God descended from before having sex with the daughters of men. There are somewhere between 20 and 30 ancient temples on the mountain, most of which were dedicated to the celestial gods. As I've come to find out, this is an unprecedented number of pagan temples to be found anywhere in the entire Canaanite or Phoenician region. Well, naturally, knowing what the pagans thought of this place, the false gods, the traditions, and the practices associated with it, the Jews believed this to be a place of great evil. So what was Jesus doing there in the heart of pagan Gentile country? He was again getting in the face of Satan on Satan's own home turf. It was there he was declared within earshot of Satan's earthly lair that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It was Peter who, who said that. Peter, nicknamed the Rock, on behalf of all the disciples, Peter said this. It was not on Peter that Jesus would build his ecclesia, his church, but on the rock of truth that Peter stated that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. That foundational rock of truth is only revealed through the work of God's Holy Spirit. It was on or next to another rock that this proclamation was made, the rock that makes up the cave structure of what's called the gates of hell, and the foundation of the mountain where the pagan gods dwelled. Jesus was not only making a statement about his future plans with his ecclesia as the Messiah, he was claiming territory. <laughs> it's also at this same location that he declared that the gates of hell would not be able to withstand his ecclesia. To his followers throughout time, these are words of great comfort. To Satan and the other fallen angels, whose hallowed ground Jesus had dared to tread upon, these were challenging and threatening fighting words. Well, six days later, Jesus ascended up a high mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's come to be known as. The biblical text does not name the mountain. Most likely, this was not Mount Tabor, as Emperor Constantine's mom, <laughs> Helen, thought it to be hundreds of years after the fact. Mount Tabor, peaking out at only about 1,886 feet, sits in the southern area of the Galilee, 42 miles away as the crow flies from where Jesus had been camped around Caesarea Philippi. Mount Tabor is the, quote, mountain, unquote, which has been considered the Mount of Transfiguration ever since Helen declared it to be so. Today, if you asked to tour the Mount of Transfiguration and board a tour bus to do so, Mount Tabor is where you'll be taken. And you'll find churches atop it telling you, according to Constantine's mom, what happened there. But the highest mountain in the area where Jesus was at around Caesarea Philippi, in fact, the highest mountain on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea is the infamous Mount Hermon. It sits just 15 miles away from where Jesus had been in Caesarea Philippi, and it towers over the entire region at 9,200 feet, almost five times as high as Mount Tabor. Jesus was likely passing through Caesarea Philippi on his way to Mount Hermon. Well, Mount Hermon was ground zero for being associated with evil. Pagans in the entire region believed it was the dwelling place of the celestial gods, the gods who had been given authority over the Gentile nations, the place where the sons of God were thought to have been disobedient and rebellious and descended to fornicate 
<laughs> There's an Old Testament word for <laughs> with the daughters of men. A whole lot of fornicating going on up there at Mount Hermon. Anyway, so Mount Hermon is also likely the place envisioned in Isaiah's prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 14. The prophecy begins as though addressing the king of Babylon, but it soon becomes apparent there's a double entendre going on. This prophecy either involves Satan or the regional spiritual authority over Babylon. They may even be one and the same. Either way, the mountain of the north that this fallen spiritual being desired to ascend and be like God is likely Mount Hermon. Isaiah 14 verses 13 to 14 says this, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, Satan will never ascend the mountain in the north and be like God. However, directly in the face of Satan, Jesus ascends the mountain in the north where the gods are said to sit in council, above the clouds. It's there Jesus is transfigured into a shining being as bright as the sun and that he meets with Moses and Elijah, and a voice comes from heaven. Here's the story of what happened on the mountain according to Matthew chapter 17, verses 2 to 8. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus was not alone, and I'm not talking about the three disciples that were with him. Moses and Elijah joined Jesus in a form that could be seen with physical eyes. But out of all the Old Testament Bible characters, why these two? Moses and Elijah were the quintessential representatives of the law and the prophets, but they were so much more as it related to where they stood on that day. Moses was the one who God used to free the nation that he'd set aside for himself. Moses was the one he used to defeat the gods of Egypt, and the one he used to march the people of Israel through this same Gentile region of Bashan and exterminate the Rephaim the descendants of the sons of God. Elijah was the man God used to defeat 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Baal and Asherah were the highest gods and most worshipped in this same region they now all stood in. The false gods of this area hated these guys. They'd both been used by God to completely humiliate the false gods. I... I can, I can just picture the Most High God Yahweh saying to the false gods who witnessed this event, I'm sure you all remember Moses and Elijah. <laughs> Powerful message being sent. Sure, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was a statement to all who would follow Jesus later as to who he is and that we should listen to him. The testimony of Moses and Elijah would have been especially significant to the Jews who were considering who Jesus was. But at the time this incident occurred, it was an enormous proclamation directed directly at the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. What took place was not for the benefit of mortals at the time. Jesus and his three disciples were in a remote location, miles away from anyone. 
there were only three human witnesses there to observe what happened, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus told them not to tell a soul what they had seen and heard until after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus had ascended the great mountain of the north. He was in the midst of the place of the celestial gods, with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. Jesus stood in all his glory, his clothes white as light, and his face shining like the sun. What was the statement being made to the unseen realm? The statement came out of a bright cloud. Yahweh, the Most High God, also known as the Cloud Rider, had showed up. His message was simple. This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Yahweh had spoken. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke and declared Jesus to be his son in whom he was well pleased. That announcement had taken place on relatively friendly turf in Judea. By that action, Jesus had previously been credentialed as God's heir at his baptism in the land of the Hebrews, which Yahweh had set aside for himself. The official proclamation that Jesus is Yahweh's son and chosen champion had now been declared into the heart of the supernatural realm which presides over the Gentile nations, which had previously been given over to the sons of God to rule. It's no coincidence that when Jesus gets back to the bottom of the mountain that he encounters a situation where his other disciples he left there had been unable to cast out a demon out of a boy who was sick with epilepsy. This demon was especially strong and entrenched in the young boy. Yet, Jesus commanded the demon to leave and the boy was instantly healed. At the very least, this event on Mount Hermon would serve to demonstrate to the Gentile pagan world that the Most High God stood on the mountain they believed to be sacred and declared Jesus to be his son and that they should listen to him. But at most, this was an eyewitness account from the physical world perspective of, of Jesus' three disciples of a divine assembly. Well, I personally believe both are true. Out of all of the events in the life of Jesus, I consider this credentialing of Jesus by God in front of the Gentile heavenly powers, next in line in significance after his death and resurrection. The fight had been picked, and Yahweh named his champion. If Jesus hitting the beaches at the Gadarenes can be compared to the Allied troops assaulting Normandy, then this was like Jesus entering Berlin in the middle of World War II and having his authority declared to Hitler. The biggest bee's nest of them all had been poked, except it was not a bee at all which had awakened and been provoked to wrath. It was the dragon and his minions, the bulls of Bashan, who were all set on devouring the Son of God. This is just a guess, but I am guessing that because Jesus had been transfigured, that he was in some sort of state in which he could see into the spirit realm, just the same as he could see Peter, James, and John who were cowering at what they were observing. But even if he couldn't, he had to know the significance of what was going on. So I have to ask this question. What kind of human could stand on Mount Hermon knowing that he was standing in front of the dragon and the worst evil beings both created realms will ever know that were dead set on destroying him. It's a man whose level of courage absolutely locks up my mind in trying to comprehend, and it takes my breath away. It's a man who causes me to weep like a child when I think about how he could conceivably want to purchase me with his own blood. He's the man who the highest-ranking angels in heaven declare to be the only one worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Most High God who sits on the throne in heaven and to loose its seals, which will one day bring about the end of this age. How could that guy possibly want someone like me as his own? Well, the casting out of demons in the Gadarenes the open recognition by men at the gates of hell that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, 
and the pronouncement by the Most High God on Mount Hermon was a three-pronged assault by Yahweh on the ancient evil land of Bashan, where so much spirit realm activity had taken place since the time the sons of God descended and slept with human women. But it was more than an assault. It was a tactical taunting to Satan for him to do his worst and bring about what Jesus had just informed his disciples of down at the base of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi, that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and raised from the dead. Jesus knew this was coming soon, and it was weighing heavy on his mind as he and his disciples made it back to the north shore of the Galilee. He told them again about what was going to happen. This is what it says in Matthew 17, 22 to 23. Now, while they were staying in the Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Well, the disciples were understandably distressed. But this was all a part of the plan. Everything Jesus had done since he began his ministry had defied Satan. Satan had failed at tempting Jesus. Jesus had demonstrated that he could command physical elements to instantly change their properties. He had proved he could reverse the effects of physical afflictions caused by Satan. Then, Yahweh set the ground rules on the Mount of Transfiguration. Satan must listen to Jesus as though he was speaking for Yahweh. This meant Satan himself dare not try a direct attack on Jesus. To stop Jesus, Satan would have to kill him using the humans who belonged to him. It was not too long after Jesus came down off the mountain that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Among all his other credentials, Jesus had now proven his ability to give life back to other humans. It was after the resurrection of Lazarus that the Pharisees began to carry out Satan's work in the form of a plot to kill Jesus. Satan's plot would play out in Jerusalem. But while Satan thought he was the mastermind behind killing Jesus, he was only walking into the trap that had been planned for him by Yahweh before Satan even tempted Eve in the garden. Satan acted through Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' inner circle. He acted through the religious leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, who represented the people of Israel, who had turned away from Yahweh many times before in favor of other gods. And he acted through the leaders of the Gentile nations, the Romans. Judas was not a child of God, but a child of Satan. The same can be said about those who Jesus called a brood of vipers, the Jewish religious leaders. And the leaders of the Gentile nations obviously answered to the gods other than the Most High. Well, Jesus prayed often. But while in the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to his arrest, Jesus prayed so intensely that he's said to have been sweating blood. As a side note, that's an actual medical condition brought on by either severe fear or stress. It's called hematidrosis or something like that. This happened to Jesus because he knew what was in store for him. But many people have known they would face their execution the next day and haven't experienced such extreme stress as to bring about such a medical condition. So why did Jesus? Yahweh was listening to the prayers of his son. He mercifully dispatched an angel to comfort Jesus. But not even an angel sent by God proved to be enough to comfort him. Jesus knew his death was temporary and that he would be resurrected. He knew what was going to happen was necessary. I believe what Jesus was experiencing was not just the anguish of being handed over to Roman soldiers who would torture and kill him, but the anguish of being handed over vicariously to the powers of darkness, the forces of hell, the ancient fallen angels who would act through the men who were the children of the devil. He perhaps was surrounded by the evil, seething powers of darkness as he was praying, or they, he knew that they were closing in on him. During his arrest, Jesus told his captors, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus knew he was surrounded by this darkness. 
There was something very powerful going on in the unseen realm. When the men arrived at Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, he asked them, Who do you seek? To which they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus responded by saying, I am he, the soldiers likely experiencing the power of some unseen force drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus rebuked Peter for pulling out his sword and striking the servant of the high priest, thereby taking off his ear, Jesus reaffirmed the reality and power of the spirit realm when he said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it may be so? That's found in Matthew 26, 53-55. Well, Jesus was taken captive without resisting. He was beaten, nailed to a Roman cross, and died without putting up a fight. No angels attempted to rescue him. Satan had to wonder why, after all else that had happened, it was that easy to kill God's Son. What a shallow and disappointing victory it must have seemed like. While on the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that psalm continues. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Surely the words of the psalm were an accurate depiction of what Jesus was observing and what was going through his mind. The psalmist continues. Let these words sink in as to what Jesus' perspective was. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The bulls of Bashan, the celestial gods who Jesus had taunted in the region of the Gentiles, had caught up with him. They had surrounded him. Psalms 22 continues, For dogs encompass me, A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Satan believed he had won, that he had again thwarted the plans of Yahweh, as he believed he had done in the Garden of Eden, and as he believed he had done with the nation of Israel. As what he may have viewed as a double slap in the face to the Most High God, to accomplish this, Satan used Yahweh's own chosen people, Israel, who he had also led astray to worship other gods besides Yahweh. But, as he said he would do, (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead three days after his execution. Angelic beings were right there to roll the stone away, watch him rise in his eternal body, and serve as guides as the humans showed up to the empty tomb. Satan (laughs) did not see that coming. This is the point where Satan, the sons of God, and all the demons who rebelled against Yahweh realized their fate. Satan could not tempt Jesus. He could not control Jesus. Yahweh had said that he must obey Jesus, and then, after he rose from the dead, Satan realized that he can't even physically hurt Jesus. Death has no hold on him, and as Jesus demonstrated, he could even restore life to those who he chooses. Yahweh's champion had won. The penalty of dying like humans, as Yahweh had pronounced against the spiritual sons of God, was sealed. Jesus had accomplished his first mission. He'd obtained all the credentials needed to come back one day, put all his enemies under his feet, and establish his kingdom on the earth. Among all the other things the gospel informs us of, like making eternal life possible for the elect, He had been placed in authority over the powers of darkness and demonstrated his ability to bind the strong man so that he could take over his house. The strong man, of course, being Satan and his house being the Gentile nations. That work is not complete yet. When he returns, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Jesus ascended to heaven and took up his place of authority at the right hand of Yahweh. The male child of the Revelation chapter 12 passage I read had indeed been caught up to God and to his throne. He now wields the power of the Most High God in the heavenlies, and all the fallen host of heaven know it. But 
he left the dragon and his unholy horde here on earth. From what I understand of Bible prophecy, when Jesus shows up next time, he'll bind the strong man, Satan, along with his angels and cast them all into hell to await their final judgment as Jesus establishes his kingdom among the nations. Then Jesus will hand the nations back over to his Father. Yet, from Satan's perspective, he thinks Jesus left the Jews and his followers on the earth to fend for themselves. He's read the Bible and knows what it says about him and what's coming, but as Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 informs us of, despite this, Satan will continue to speak out against the Most High God and attempt to change the appointed events of the future. The actions of Jesus all fit into God's long-term plan that the Apostle Paul called the mystery. This mystery is a plan that goes back to the Garden of Eden. God had this plan in mind when he originally handed over the nations to other spiritual authorities so they could inherit what they deserved. He always had a way that those who were not of his chosen nation ultimately could be of his chosen people. I just want to touch briefly on this mystery that Paul's talking about. This is what he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. Of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, the ecclesia, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he accomplished when Jesus came. God is an exceptional planner. Being the author of the story, he knows every move that will be made ahead of time. All along, through all the angelic rebellions and the rebellious acts of Israel, through all the oppression of Satan, through the use of the nations that he has authority over, through all of the captivities and dispersions of his people and the abominations that had taken place, his plan always included Jesus being initially rejected as the Messiah, his death and resurrection, ultimately dominating and defeating Satan so that he will take back the nations for his Father in heaven and rule over them. God had all that in mind. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15:24, Then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This mystery is now being made known to those rulers and authorities in the spirit realm each time someone is ransomed from among the Gentile nations by Jesus. That has to absolutely tick off these regional spiritual authorities who believe they're in charge. Every time they see Jesus coming to rescue and call out another member of his ecclesia or church, from their territory. Until Jesus returns and puts all his enemies under his feet, the nations of this world, except for Israel, still belong to Satan. But one at a time, those elect to salvation by God are coming to Jesus from among the nations, which still belong to the fallen spiritual regional princes. The elect are like points of light in the midst of total spiritual darkness. Those God has called out to be a part of his people are sojourners and temporary residents on this earth. I am happy to be sojourning with you today. You know, the basis of our association with each other as part of Jesus' ecclesia is our belief in him and our hope in his coming and putting things right. My desire is that your belief in our master and hope in what lies ahead is strengthened through understanding this storyline that's found in the Bible just a little bit better. The story of the life of Jesus and what he accomplished has been called the greatest story ever told, and I wholeheartedly agree. What I've been talking about is the great story behind the greatest story ever told. Well, that's it for this time. 
Next time, if God allows, I'll be talking about the forms that interactions between the spiritual and physical realms may take. But until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.